Well, um, by way of introduction, uh, let's begin in James 1. Turn in your Bibles to James 1. We'll end up in Mark 3, but uh, let's start in James 1. While you're turning there, uh, think about the question, what does humble submission to the word of God look like? How can you tell the difference between humble belief and subtle yet soul-destroying unbelief? What should you look for to answer those questions in your life and in the life of your church, in the life of those around you? Now, James 1, it it does more than this, but it helps us, it it gives us a a helpful test to answer those questions. Uh, James 1, 21 through 25, follow along with me just to set the stage for us. Starting in verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So in proverbial fashion, James really gives uh, the church a, a wonderful gift in this letter. And, and in what we just read, James offers us insight into what a, a faithful, humble faith looks like. It, it looks like one who in humility receives the word implanted in verse 21. It looks like a person who's a doer of the word, not merely a hearer in verse 22. And, and ultimately in verse 25, uh, this one who abides by the word being an effectual doer, James says this one will be blessed in what he does. That's the implication that we should note tonight. A humble faith, one that Jesus commends, is one that hears the word of God and believes it. That's the implication. I want to put that up, up, uh, up in front of you, front and center. Mark 3 puts some flesh on this. But I wanted to put that principle out there. So the passage we'll focus on in Mark 3 teaches the same principle that we just read about in in James 1. But since since Mark 3 is is part of a narrative, and and there's going to be some other things, even some heavy things that are put before us, uh, I wanted to to lay that out on the table that, that that's what I want us walking out of here with tonight. So again, humble faith, hears the word of God, believes it, and then will bear fruit because of that. So turn to Mark 3 if you haven't already. Mark 3. Before we begin looking uh, at, this, at it specifically, this passage is, is drawing our attention to the, the different responses of Jesus' ministry. In this section of his gospel, it's, it's chapters 1 through 8. Uh, Mark's focusing on the identity of Jesus and how different groups are are rejecting him. One by one, different groups reject him all throughout the first eight chapters. 
And in the early stages of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has come on the scene announcing that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he says, repent and believe in the gospel. Those are his first words in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 1, verse 15. And then to back up just the, the magnitude of that statement, Jesus begins his ministry of preaching, teaching, uh, deliverance, and healing. And in the midst of this, Jesus does things that that rub the religious establishment uh, the wrong way. Uh, You see, it's it's not just that he heals people. He, He makes the outrageous claim that he forgives sin. And then he uses his healing to back that up. That's, that's the whole point of, of, uh, of the healing the paralytic in chapter two, verses three through 12. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And he's lying there on a mat. Not only this, but Jesus is beginning to show signs that he doesn't, he doesn't respect the established norms of the Sabbath, of Sabbath keeping. After all, he and his men, they go through uh, wheat fields and they, they pick grain so that they can eat because they're hungry, and they do that on the Sabbath. They're doing work on the Sabbath. Who does he think he is? Well, he, he tells these Pharisees who bring that to his attention that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he's the one who says what's right and what's wrong to do on the Sabbath, what should and shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. And then, to make matters worse, in a synagogue on the Sabbath, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. This is just simply too much for the Pharisees to take. Uh, so from 3, 6 on, from chapter 3, verse 6 on, they begin to look for a way to destroy him. And it's in the midst of these con- uh, confrontations that Jesus names 12 men to be with him wherever he goes. He, he appoints them to preach and to cast out demons which was the very same thing, very same things that he was doing. So up to this point, Mark's painting a picture of the controversial atmosphere surrounding his early ministry. So on the one hand, you have the Pharisees, they, they want to eliminate him. And on the other, you have the, the disciples and the crowd who, who, who's accepting him, who's receiving him. The crowd kind of goes both ways, but at this point, the crowd's receiving him. They're following him wherever he's going and, 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 and liking what he's saying, liking what he's doing. And now, beginning in verse 20, Mark continues to develop both, both those who oppose Jesus and those who welcome him. So as we move through this passage, uh, let's note who Jesus says is in, who Jesus says is out, and then why that's the case. So how, how he does this, how, how, he, how he tells this narrative can be framed up this way. Three portraits of who is in and who is out. Three portraits of who is in and who is out. The first portrait is in verses 20 and 21. Those who are out because of subtle unbelief. Those who are out because of subtle unbelief. Now, before we, before we get into the text, I should note that, that this passage as a whole is called a, a Markin sandwich. Um, so in other words, Mark likes to, to tell his narrative uh, by, by introducing story A and talks a little bit about story A and then he cuts it off 
And then he gets into story B. Talks about story B, but he finishes story B. And in some way, story B has something to do with story A. So he finishes story B, and then he picks back up on story A and finishes that. And the two have to do with the other. Usually, the one in the middle is saying something about the, the, the buns, the, the bread, as, it's, uh, as you would have it. Um, so it's got an interesting name, but there's a point to it. Uh, and so it comes up a, a few times in, in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, and this is, this is one of those. So here in verses 20 and 21, Mark's introducing a new narrative in his gospel. It's going to be tied together through verse 35, and it's going to show how certain groups respond to Jesus and then how Jesus responds to them. So let's read verse 20. And he came home, Jesus came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. Home for Jesus was Capernaum. He, he grew up in Nazareth, but, but from what two, chapter 2 verse 1 says, home is Capernaum. And so this is the base of operations for his itinerant ministry. And, and as the, is the case, wherever Jesus goes, crowds follow him. And Jesus and his newly appointed disciples are, are in this house. They're, they're weary from the, the demands of trot, uh, travel and ministry and they're just looking for a rest, but, but this crowd has followed them and, and even spilled into the house. They've, they, they've been able to, to enter the house, and, and it's to such an extent that they can't even find space, let alone time, to eat a meal together. So, so you just imagine these men sitting, sitting around the table, reclining around the table, and, and trying to take a bite of, of, of their sandwich or, or whatever it was that they're eating, and they just keep getting bumped on the elbow. They keep getting tapped on the shoulder. They keep getting... Uh, a thousand questions whispered into their ears so that, so that whoever's asking that can get access to, uh, to, to Jesus. I, I've, got, I've got a relative who's sick. I, he needs healed. Um, when's he gonna make food again? That was good. Um, just a thousand different things. They can't even eat. So even though they're at home, there's no rest for these men. There's no re- relaxation to be found for, for Jesus or them. And then having heard that he's back in Capernaum, Mark notes the the response of Jesus' family in verse 21. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he's lost his senses. In other words, his family, and and the reason I say it's his family is because later on, verses 31 through 35, we find out exactly who they are. Uh, But they think he's gone crazy. All of this attention has gone to his head. And then on top of that, the rumors by now would have spread because of what uh, we'll see the scribes doing later on, that the religious leaders, this rumor is going about that they want to do away with him. Our sweet boy, Jesus, he's, he's getting into trouble. We need, we need to go do something about that. So, so because of this opposition that, that was mounting against him and, and he clearly doesn't have his head on straight, the family decides to set, set out to bring Jesus back home and talk some sense into him. They wanted to, to quote unquote help him. They wanted to smooth out the rough edges. They wanted to calm him down a little bit so the crowds won't be so rabid and the Pharisees would back off. In the end, Mark wants us to see that this act was a manifestation of unbelief. That'll be made explicit 
in the, in the last section. This unbelief may have been subtle, may have been inconspicuous, but it was still unbelief. And he shows us that it's unbelief by bringing in another group, a second group, in a second account, which is the meat and the cheese of, of this sandwich. And that's the, the second portrait of who is in and who is out. It comes in verses 22 through 30. Those who are out because of obvious unbelief. Those who are out because of obvious unbelief. Start in verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So, on the one hand, we have uh, the family that thinks Jesus is crazy. On the other hand, we have the scribes that come down and they're giving voice to their opinion that the source of Jesus' ministry is not God. It is Satan. Beelzebul is another word, another name for, for Satan. So, so note that from the start, in verse 22, these scribes, they're not on a neutral fact-finding mission. They're not, they're not out there uh, distributing surveys to be filled out. Which, what do you think about Jesus' ministry? They're, they're coming to look for a fight. They're picking a fight with Jesus. So in verse 22, the, the scribes from Jerusalem enter the scene. And, and, and these scribes, just to remind us, they're experts in the law. And they're also chief interpreters of the law. They, they set the parameters for what faithful obedience to the law looked like. In other words, they're the ones who applied the law to the lives of the people. And as they, they interacted with Jesus, they were mainly concerned about where his authority came from to teach and to heal and to forgive. In addition, Jesus' teaching regularly conflicted with theirs and, and having their authority challenged by him, they began to make judgments on Jesus. And so this is where we get that accusation that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebul. They, they conclude that Jesus is not from God, but he's a servant of Satan because he's able to cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. And just to point something out, this, this conclusion that they come to, this judgment that they're making, it's not, it's not just a, a passing comment that one of them says under their breath to the other. This is a sustained campaign of vilification. The reason I say that is because it's not what they said. It's what they were saying. Town to town, road to road, village to village, they were saying this. They were spreading this, this propaganda around like wildfire. And so in this context, it's in this context that they show up in Capernaum and, they can, uh, and then it's not they who confront Jesus. This is interesting. Jesus goes out and confronts them in verse 23 and he exposes the absurdity of their accusation through parables. Look at uh, verse, starting at verse 23. And Jesus called them to himself and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. 
it's an exercise in reason. If, if he was actually casting out demons by Satan's power, what purpose would that be serving Satan's kingdom? Just, just consider what Jesus was doing. He was casting out demons that were terrorizing people and causing all sorts of calamity and tragedy in their lives. It kind, of, kind of sounds like what Satan wants. If he was casting them out, how's that helping Satan? In other words, if, if Jesus was from Satan, then the conclusion to be made is that Satan's kingdom is destroying itself voluntarily. Satan's committing suicide, if this is the case. And if that's the case, then his end is at hand, as Jesus concludes in, in verse 26. If he's so foolish to do battle with himself, then his defeat is inevitable and it's near. So just like a nation that's at war with itself will not stand, so too will be the end of, of Satan. So if that's not what hap what's happening, then what is? Verse 27. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. And then he will plunder his house. In other words, Jesus is the one who's, who's binding the strong man so that, that his house could be plundered. The strong man is Satan. Jesus' ministry of casting out demons is a full frontal assault on Satan's kingdom. So Satan's kingdom is under attack, but not by civil war. Not by one of his minions rising up to take him on. Satan's kingdom is under attack by the kingdom of God. So this, this picture that, that Jesus gives us in verse 27, it really should give us reason for, for joy that God cannot be stopped. Every time Jesus comes up against a, a demon, who wins? Jesus, every time. And it's not even a battle. He says, come out and they get out. God won't be stopped. His gospel, therefore, will go forth. Jesus will be confessed as Lord and as King, and the world will be brought under his reign and his rule when he returns. It will happen. No matter how bad things look, it will happen. So this has implications for our evangelism. It has implications for, for uh, the preservation of the church, that there's no plan B for, for God. It has implications for the perseverance of the saints. No matter how bad it looks in your life, God's made promises to you through his word. And he will fulfill them. So, so remember that. Remember that as you, as you fight, as you fight the fight of faith, as you struggle against sin. Remember that. Jesus wins. And if you're part of Jesus, that's a good side to be on. He has absolute authority. He has absolute power. Entrust yourself to him. Remain in him. He's faithful. And he's promised to keep you. So Jesus continues in verse 28. He's not done with these scribes. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because, they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now, I guess it'd be just like a seminary student to pick this passage where you've got the unforgivable sin involved. Um, that's not why I picked this passage. It just happens to be here. So, so praise the Lord, we get to look at it. We get to study it together. Um, but these verses, I include myself in, in this, these verses have caused many a believer to wonder whether or not he or she has committed uh, this sin. So, so because of that, just because it's, it's a big issue, uh, let's spend some time uh, digging in and uh, see what Jesus means by this. First, let's note that the seriousness of the accusation of the scribes from verse 22 is revealed in these verses, in verses 28 through 30. Not only is it absurd that Satan's kingdom would be at war with itself, but the charge that the source of Jesus' ministry as being satanic is to go down a road from which there is no return. To see the healings and the deliverances and then the step back, think about it and say, that's satanic. That is the blasphemy of blasphemies. This is the absolute hardness of heart of the scribes on full display. They've come down from Jerusalem to pick a fight with Jesus, accusing him of demonic possession, and in doing so, they're flying in the face of eternal condemnation. It's that serious. Why? Well, for one reason, it's, it's patently obvious that Jesus' ministry is not grounded in the demonic, but in holiness. Who's, who's the one who comes down from heaven when, when he's baptized? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who's behind his ministry. And to say otherwise is, is, to have your, is to have the hardness of your heart exposed and from what Jesus says here, made permanent. So Jesus begins by saying, truly I say to you. He's saying, listen up. What I have to say is of, of extreme and utmost importance. And then he highlights, this is wonderful, he highlights the gracious and forgiving character of God. He says, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. So let's think of the classic example, Paul. He slandered Christ. He persecuted the church. All of that before his conversion where Christ knocks him off of his horse and turns him into the, the apostle to the Gentiles. Think of yourself. How, how you have blasphemed God in a myriad of ways before he drew you to himself. I think of things that we see on, on um, church marquee signs. There's one uh, a little bit north of here a few months ago in the context of promoting uh, so-called same-sex marriage said this, Jesus had two fathers, and look how great he turned out. If they repent, if that church repents, if that church leadership repents, God will forgive. God is a fundamental characteristic of who he is, is a forgiving God. 
So if you're here for whatever reason and you don't believe the gospel, this is, this is, this is the implication for you. God forgives you when you repent and believe in the gospel. He does. That is part of who he is. That is his character. So your, your one response tonight needs to be repent. He will receive you no matter what you've done. God's a forgiving God. However, in verse 29, Jesus says there's a limit to what a man can do and, and still be forgiven. And that limit is this. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. The sense there on eternal is, is uh, endless time. In other words, whoever slanders the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, but will always carry his guilt. There will never, never be a time where this blasphemer is not suffering the consequences of his sin. Why did Jesus say this? Because in verse 30, Mark gives us the reason. He, he draws the line for us to connect the dots. Jesus said this, because the scribes were saying he has an unclean spirit. So the foundation of their accusation was that the source of Jesus' ministry was demonic. So to say such a thing about the Holy Spirit, the God who is holy, is to slander God in such a way as to bring eternal condemnation and punishment down on your head. Now, can a believer commit this sin? No. Let's be clear. No. Why? Contextually. Jesus is not walking around today doing these things in, in our presence, giving us an opportunity to deny him by saying, well, the, the reason that he's doing this is because Satan is empowering him. Physically, that can't happen. Now, it's possible that you could read the Gospels and then at the end of them think along with the scribes and the Pharisees that I think the scribes and the Pharisees were right, yeah. It's possible, but if you, if you look around, if you, if you think about our world and the, and the people, uh, what, the attacks that are being made on the, uh, on the Bible right now is, is not that Jesus' miracles were done by the power of Satan, but the issue is whether or not he did them in the first place. That, that's the way they're attacking it. They're not saying that Jesus, they're, they're thinking that Jesus didn't do it at all. So we're not really running into that contextually. But also consider this. Cons consider it from, from what's going on in your own heart if you think that, that you've done this or, 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 or would consider, um, consider whether or not you have uh, done this in the past. If you're concerned about that, there is no danger that you've committed this sin. In other words, if, if you're worried that you've committed this sin, you haven't. Why? Compare yourself to the scribes. Being concerned about blaspheming the Holy Spirit was not a worry at all for the scribes. They were there to pick a fight. 
with Jesus. And when their sin was exposed, there was no indication that they repented, where they were convicted and repented of their sin. But you, you're concerned about it. You're worried about it. Totally different from the scribes. Do you see that difference? So, so when this comes up as a concern, the answer is no. However, there are ways where we can dishonor the Holy Spirit, right? Ephesians 4.30 warns us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit through our unwholesome speech. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says we can quench the Spirit through despising his prophetic, prophetic utterances, despising his word. So even though a believer in, in Jesus Christ is, is not in any danger of, of blaspheming the Holy Spirit like the scribes did, really to our shame, we still can sin against him. The point here, though, is, is not to get bogged down in, into the potential to, to commit this sin, whether or not a believer can do this. Uh, the point is that Mark is highlighting the hard-hearted rejection, opposition, and unbelief of the scribes. They're, they're foaming at the mouth in their opposition to Christ, to his deeds, and to his claims. And so this unbelief is of the most explicit kind. Yet, thinking about that sandwich again, this display of unbelief is, is couched between the subtle yet equally culpable unbelief and opposition of his family who come back to the foreground of the scene in verse 31. And this is the third portrait of who is in and who is out. Those who are in because of humble belief. Those who are in because of humble belief. In these verses, Mark gives us the, the point that he's driving at. Remember, he's addressing the issue of, of who's in and who is out regarding those around him and, and their connection to him. And, and it's obvious that the scribes are, are on the outside. They've, they've accused Jesus of working with demonic influence. What about his family? Uh, they were introduced to, as trying to save Jesus from himself, thinking that, that he was crazy. They said he lost, he's lost his senses. And then what about those around him? There's another group. There's a third group. There's the crowd. There's the disciples. What about them? Who does Jesus say belongs to him? That's the issue right now for Mark. Who responds rightly to Jesus? Let's read verses 31 through 35. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister, and mother. In this final section, Jesus' family is contrasted with the crowd. In verse 31, we find the family outside the house, sending word for him to come out and go home with them. 
Now, it's, it's the Christmas season, and, and um, this isn't too favorable on Mary, the, the mother of Jesus. It's interesting what Mark does with his gospel. This is really the only one that I know of where, where Jesus' mother appears on the scene. And so it's interesting what he's doing here. So, but the question becomes, did Mary forget something that happened about nine months before his birth? Did Mary forget something the night of his birth? What's going on with Mary? Mark doesn't tell us as, as far as this goes. The other gospels don't tell us. So we're left with guesses, and, and my best guess is that it's a moment of weakness. That she, she sees her boy getting threats put against him, and so she, she tries to help. So that may be what's going on. But verse 31 has her outside the house. Now notice what we have in verse 32. The crowd is sitting around Jesus inside the house. So, so already, before Jesus articulates the distinction, there's a contrast between who is in and who is out. The, the crowd is inside the house. They're sitting in submission to the Lord. The family is on the outside, and they're standing, standing in judgment of the Lord. So, so by the time we get to verse 32, Mark's really prepared us for what Jesus is about to say. Mark's painted this, this picture of who is in and who is out. So the crowd says in verse 32, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. In response, Jesus makes the division explicit. This division that's manifesting itself. He says in verses 33 through 35 again, who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking about at those who were, who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So now it's clear who's in and who's out. His, his blood family is not his spiritual family. His real family is made up of those who are with him, those who submit to him, those who respond in repentance and faith in his proclamation. Remember what he starts off with in Mark 1. Repent and believe the gospel. His true family is made up of those who do the will of God. Those who come to oppose him have no part with him. And those who come to take him away from what he has come to do are not his family. Only those who commit themselves to him by doing the will of God are his family. And what was it that these people were doing? What set them apart from the family? What set them apart from the scribes? They heard the message of the gospel, the need for repentance, and they responded with faith. They were doing the very thing that was necessary for them to do. They were doing the will of God by humbly sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, responding to him. So how do you tell the difference between humble belief and subtle unbelief? Let's connect some dots. 
the distinction that Mark shows us is that Jesus receives those who humbly receive him by believing what he says. Those who are found sitting inside the house around Jesus are the people that Jesus receives, the people, uh, the people Jesus calls his own. His family, they're on the outside. They're standing in judgment. They end up being rejected because they don't believe what Jesus says about himself. So you can tell the difference between belief and unbelief by how a person receives Jesus, by how you receive Jesus. In particular, you can tell the difference by how a person receives his word. So you may not be found overtly condemning Jesus like the scribes were, but you may hear the truth of God and then subtly reject it. And when you reject it, for whatever reason that you say that you reject it, you've installed yourself as the judge of the word of God, of the truth of God, and ultimately of the son of God. So just to put some flesh on this, to um, think on, on how this could happen to us. Think about, think about Philippians 4, 6, to seven with me. You can turn there if you want. Um, it's okay if you don't. But it says, be anxious for what? Nothing. But in all things, everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, think about that, surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How do you respond to that? Now, I'm willing to say, and this is just purely subjective based on, on the understanding that I have of my own heart, that some, and maybe even most of us, secretly struggle with that passage. We begin to argue with Paul in our hearts. Be anxious for nothing? You mean not anything? What about money? I've got bills to pay. I've got Christmas gifts to buy. What about health? What about family? What about work? What about those things? You're saying don't worry about any of that? And just pray about it? How does Paul respond? Of course I'm saying that. Of course. And he echoes Jesus. What can your worry do about any of those things? God promises you his peace. Surpasses any understanding that you could muster up in your mind. He promises you his peace and you're arguing with me over your right to worry about something. 
That's the kind of argument that I'm talking about, at least in my heart. So how do you respond to the commands and the promises of the word of God? I was tempted to go to Romans 8.28, but, but we're going to get there. Um, I would love it if, if Rick spent four years in Romans 8. I don't know about you, but that would, I think that would be great. Um, I was tempted to go there, but I'll let Rick have that thunder. Um, but do, do you believe God and what he says? Or is that, there that lingering, yeah, but... Your answer to that question of whether or not you believe God, that's going to expose something in your heart. Whether or not you believe God's word. So, so let's leave here with, with these questions in mind. First, where does subtle unbelief rear its ugly head in your life? If you discover an area of unbelief in your life, what's your response? Your response must be a direct attack on that unbelief with the word of God, with what is true. Otherwise, what's the danger? If you let that unbelief fester in your life, in your heart, in your mind, Start believing that unbelief. The danger is, the danger is you may be found on judgment day being one of those who say, Lord, Lord. That's the danger. This is eternally significant. You could deceive yourself by not believing the word. By thinking you're something when you're not. But let's not only search for unbelief. Let's also ask how you can cultivate humble belief in your heart. How can you cultivate it? The answer is simple. By believing every word of God. Every word of God that you read in this book. Believe it. That's how you cultivate humble faith. Saturate your life with the word of God. Always, always, always be asking, what does the Bible say about that? Every circumstance of life, what does the Bible say about that? Every attitude of your heart, what does the Bible say about that? If you're asking that question and you're following up by searching the scriptures for the answer and then you believe that answer that you get, that you receive from his word and then you repent when you need to change, when sin is exposed, you see an attitude or an action that you've been, that you've been doing, that you've been thinking and the word of God is contrary to that. Repentance needs to happen, right? If you do that, you read it, and you repent. I trust that God's word 
promises faith-filled fruit will be a result of it. And you'll hear something magnificent when you see the Lord. Well done. Well done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that you have given to us that, that we, may, we may read it, we may understand it. You have providentially put us into a position where we can read words on a page and make sense of them. And thank you that you have made yourself clear in your word. And thank you for the wonderful promises of your word, the most magnificent of them, that when we repent of our sin and put our faith in the Lord Jesus and what he has done and the righteousness that he provides, we can stand before you without fear of condemnation. Thank you so much for that. We are, we are grateful. We are a grateful people. Help us to take up your book and read it, believe it, and do what it says. In Jesus' name, amen.